Hi everyone, it's Adam from Monkey Tennis here, just saying a huge thank you to all of you that have supported my charity appeal uh, so far. For those that haven't heard about it, this September I'm going to be swimming uh, 15 kilometres uh, between five islands in Cornwall. Uh, I'll be swimming the Isles of Scilly, that's Scilly, S-C-I-L-L-Y. Um, I'm doing it because I want to, but also to raise money for Calm, the campaign against living miserably. It's a well-known statistic that 125 people in the UK die by suicide every week, and Calm run a free and confidential helpline for people to speak through their problems and ultimately to help prevent suicides. Um, I'm looking to raise enough money to train two new phone workers um, to man those lines um, and I'll be doing it by swimming the Isles of Scilly in Cornwall. Um, if you're looking to support me, it would be greatly appreciated. Um, you can donate at justgiving.com. Um, just go there and search for Adam Swim Silly. That's Adam Swim Silly, S-C-I-L-L-Y. All donations greatly appreciated. Thank you for helping me to support Calm. And now on with Monkey Tennis. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I am hopping mad and I want something in the middle. Aha! Yup, absolutely. Yup, 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 absolutely. Monkey tennis? Bring, bring. There's a new chat in town. I had the last laugh. Damn! Monkey tennis? Love pierce my foot on his thigh. With a chuckle, with a chuckle. No. Monkey tennis? Radical. Awesome. Mega. <laughs> Monkey tennis? Where's my assistant? I do not know. Okay. Monkey tennis? Edmonds is a total wazzard of a guy. Yes, 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 and yes. It's hotter than the sun. They said, who the hell is that? Like, this is great banter. Yeah. Back of the net. Monkey tennis? The people who enjoy Alan Partridge will enjoy this podcast. The people who've never got it still won't get it. Hello, and welcome to a brand new series of Monkey Tennis, the Alan Partridge fan podcast. I'm Adam Brooks, and I'm joined by Tom Dark. I'd bloody love three dead kids. Nick Older. One can't be too careful when it comes to witches. And Tom Stab. If I want to see a gloomy adolescent pontificating about whether he wants to exist or not, I shall go to Bristol and spend Easter with my godson Brian. <laughs> so, uh, yes, welcome back. Thanks for joining us for another series of Monkey Tennis. Um, let's quickly lay out what the plan is. Adam, what's going on? I'm confused. I'm scared. I don't know where I am. <laughs> don't worry. I'm here to allay all of those fears, but you really should have known this because we did discuss before we started recording. Um, so this series broadly is called The Road to Stratagem. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, next week about your feedback uh, and all of your kind of partridge theories and questions. Um, we'll be moving on to cover Anglian Lives, which has been something that, that, that listeners of the podcast have requested a lot over the years, 2003's Anglian Lives, followed by looking at Steve Coogan's uh, 
live forays into Partridge, uh, The Man Who Thinks He's It from 1998, Alan Partridge and other less successful characters from 2008. And then we'll be culminating uh, with, obviously, how could we not go and see Stratagem, the new all-Alan, all-live extravaganza. Um, And we'll be sharing our thoughts about that uh, once the tour is completed. But we're going to start with something slightly different. Actually, strictly not Partridge at all, but we felt it was well worth a cover uh, because it's very Partridge adjacent. And that is this year's The Witchfinder, six half hours of uh, of comedy nuggets from Rob and Neil Gibbons, who you will know as the right two thirds of the writing team of Alan Partridge. Um, there will be spoilers coming up, so um, make sure you've watched it before you listen to this, watch the entire series, it's all on iPlayer. Um, but I thought we might just start by looking at why we're covering this and how much of a crossover there is in the Venn diagram between Witchfinder and Partridge. Well, I was going to say the first thing, um, as you say, obviously the Gibbons brothers uh, wrote this, but it is worth noting Steve Coogan was the script consultant as well, so he has been fully involved in the process here. He's had an eye on it. Um, uh, uh, obviously, the other notable crossover is that it co-stars Tim Key um, alongside Daisy May Cooper. Um, I also noted that um, we've got a lot of Partridge guest stars that also appear in this. Uh, people like Julian Barrett uh, showing up through the course of the series. Um, and then I guess tonally as well, it is set in Anglia. Um, and mm. again, it does revolve to some extent around an insecure man trying to excel in his profession, obsessed with status and how he's perceived. So... It does run along a similar track to Partridge, although it is obviously set in a very different era. A very astute observation, I'd agree with that, yeah. Um, Before we get into kind of our thoughts about this, um, shall we take a look at what our listeners thought? We did uh, throw the gauntlet down to say, (sighs) what did you think about this? Have you seen all of uh, The Witchfinder? How does it compare? And and what are Partridge fans' reactions to this slightly different, but in some ways very similar series? Yes, I'm going to start with what people, uh, our listeners said, when we put the call out on Twitter and we start with alienated underscore I who says my opinion is disqualified because I only watched the first episode. But for what it's worth, there's a reason I only watched the first episode. It started badly. The uh, The feedback does pick up from there and we have uh, the Sada Rab, Sada Rab, uh, Sad Arab? Sad Arab? Yeah, Sad Arab. Yeah, it's very difficult to see. I'm going to go with TSA, which is the uh, other name on the account, which says... Swollen, Swollen Deloop? Great. Yeah. great. <laughs> That's, I was trying to get where that was. Great show. Hope they do a series two. Uh, AIDS Daily says... Oh, AIDS Brain, or AIDS Daily, says, I belly laughed at the line, I won't say what it is, but it becomes with a C. Other than that, hoping it picks up a bit after episode two. Having said that, if Gervais had written it, the media would think it's lovely stuff. I can see it becoming something we will see. Uh, Ian Morgan says it was slow to get started, but I loved it. Every episode has some genuine laugh out loud moments. However, there were some times when the action stopped for some character development. I'll give it a couple of months, then watch it all over again. Give it a go, people. Uh, Cosdog said, uh, still got the last episode to go, but glad I stuck with it. Got better with every episode, in my opinion. Those who sacked it off after episode one have definitely missed out. And and, and then, then a witch, witch emoji. emoji, which is uh, quite And cute. then uh, <laughs> Harry J. Ford said, overall, I enjoyed it, but it was quite a slow burner. The main characters were a bit underwritten, and for every really good gag, there was quite a few moments that didn't land. Cast were all great, though, and I liked that it wasn't afraid to go dark and weird. Uh, just a few more on Twitter. Uh, Alvin Tostig says the humour was a bit too hit and miss for every great gag. There was a few that just weren't funny at all. 
Donald Twain said, sorry, didn't get past the first 10 minutes of the first show. It was really poor. Uh, And Matt Webb said, thought it was very enjoyable and unfairly written off by many after just one episode. Uh, Daisy Mae Cooper's character questioning the stupidity of others would be just as relevant today. Um, So switching over to Facebook, where you can expect the feedback to be slightly more racist. Um, No, it isn't really. Um, (laughs) Stephen Parry said, uh, I'm thinking Daisy Mae Cooper may be a bit of a one-trick pony. Uh, Dan Tolhurst said, I really thought while watching this, it could have been written as a period Alan Partridge script. Maybe originally the Gibbons penned it as AP's great, 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 great grandfather and old Myers as Lynn Benfield. Um, Ross Carpenter also said uh, he's seen the full series and thought it was absolutely perfect. One of the best comedies I've seen in years. I don't know if it's because I'm so used to Psychic Simon's clever quips or Daisy May's dry delivery, but it had all I'd hoped. I'm getting into my history lately and witch hunts in particular are pretty fascinating to me. I thought it had great characters, excellent costume and scenery, but the script, the antagonising they both do to each other and the passive aggression made this so watchable. I love how Gideon softens over the episodes at first seeing her as a ticket to a job only, then seeing her non-witchiness be being simply a minor detail before him allowing her familiarity and companionship to mean more than even the job despite the final lure of clacking shoes almost pulling him back on his original track there was warmth great casting humor bees and a sinister village of puritans what more could you want from a comedy uh, and just to wrap things up, uh, we've had a couple of messages on Instagram from uh, Jackie Daytona. He said, I really, really enjoyed it. More than I expected. Very well written. Some great cameos uh, slash guests. Love Julian Barrett as the fake witch finder. Daisy Mae Cooper was brilliant. Uh, Tim Key is great, but he seemed to be morphing into David Brent at times, which I couldn't get out of my head. But all in all, a highly enjoyable little series. And then Chloe Bridges adds, I wasn't expecting to enjoy it as much as I did. After the first episode, didn't really do much for me, but so glad I stuck with it. Hilarious, something different and refreshing to watch. Tim Key was brilliant. I personally, I'm not, not, not jumping too much, but of all those reviews, I actually think uh, Chloe nails that. That is more or less how I feel. Stop record, end of the pod. Is that because that's the most <laughs> recent one that you've read and that's the only one you can remember? That's the last one I can remember, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so, uh, so that's what some of our uh, astute listeners uh, thought of The Witchfinder. But um, the press, I would say, were arguably a bit less favourable. Uh, is that fair to say, Mr Tom Dark? I think that is fair to say. I think that it feels to me like those listener responses, we, we've got a mixed bag because you've got, it uh, feels like there's a lot of people there saying one episode and out wasn't for them. But it does feel like everybody that stuck with it is basically saying it's great, give it time. Uh, when we get to the press reviews, I've just got a couple of uh, highlights or uh, lowlights of quotes to uh, read out here. Um, the Independent gave the series three out of five. Um, <laughs> the end line here is, we end up with a lukewarm pot noodle. Disappointing. Um, Chortle also gave it three out of five. And it, this kind of seems to be a common thing. Uh, they write expectations are high when you have a cast of comedy nobility led by Tim Key, Daisy May Keeper, and a script from the writers of Alan Partridge. Yet the Witchfinder can't quite deliver on that promise, if not for a want of ambition. Uh, the show depends too heavily on the innate comic instincts of its formidable cast than on a strong script. Whilst there is an awkward wit to the writing of Neil and Rob Gibbons, the laughs tend to be stifled by the constant right understatement. The Witchfinder hasn't quite found the magic it seeks. So I think it's kind of, I think both of those reviews are kind of making the point the the promise and the potential seems so huge and perhaps the show hasn't quite delivered on that purely looking at the talent and the cast alone. The Guardian, however, gave this, to be fair, a bit of a kicking. Um, They ran two pieces on this, uh, both of which were not... Uh, positive, I would say, uh, with Lucy Mangan's review 
The subheading for this was a comedy with so much wasted potential it makes you sad. They talk about uh, Jessica Hines not being given a single punchline. They write her every scene seems to end before anyone has moved to find one. They write every aspect is underbaked. And yeah, the sign off for this review is at the moment it's a comedy with so much wasted potential it makes me sad. I think it's worth saying that review is based on two episodes, the first two out of six. I think all of these uh, press uh, press reviews are based on two episodes only, and I, I think we should, uh, you know, come on to talking about whether that matters because I feel yeah, like it time. does. I think I think is, it does as well. This is a series <laughs> that needs needs to be judged by by all six. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess we'll, we'll get into that as a go. Was there anything from our listeners worth uh, pulling out? Any kind of interesting ideas to uh, or comments to dig into before we? Before we delve more into our own opinions on it, I mean, Nick said there was a there was an opinion that he sort of uh, really agreed with. I think it, it, my personal feeling uh, it was to be backed up by one of the listener um, pieces of feedback. It would be Ian Morgan who said, "I wouldn't say I loved it, but I would agree that it was slow to get started." Uh, every episode had some genuine laugh out loud moments. Yes, however, there's sometimes when the action stopped for the sake of character development. Yes, I'll give it a couple of months and then watch it all over again. Yes, give it a go, people. Yes, so I would agree with Ian the most out of all of those. Uh, I think the other thing that came through across the majority of those reviews is that people cite episode one as being fairly weak, um, and people either kind of get over the hurdle of episode one and you know broadly seem to enjoy it. Or they can't get past it and they kind of write it off and, and therefore kind of judge the series based on the first episode. Um, I, I mean, I think maybe just to sort of kind of kick off the conversation, I would say episode one is kind of the weakest. I think that that is a fair um, uh, assessment of it. And I think it goes kind of from strength to strength. But I found myself after episode one thinking, hmm, not sure. But very quickly, my opinion was changed. Uh, I just want to pull out one one comment which really stuck with me from uh, AIDS Brain or AIDS Daily on Twitter, uh, where they wrote, having said that, if Gervais had written it, the media would think it's lovely stuff. I think that's a very interesting uh, point to make because, you know, I think we talked about Afterlife when that launched, because uh, that launched around the same time as this time series one. And I think we were quite lukewarm on it because a lot of the writing felt quite on the nose. And I think this is arguably in a different end of the spectrum in terms of sitcom comedy writing. So it's very interesting. I I think that the potential for this to become a bit of a beloved comedy would perhaps be there if a marquee name like a Gervais was behind it. I think that's a very interesting, uh, very interesting viewpoint and not necessarily wrong, I don't think. Um, I think in terms of the, the press reviews, this is not something I'd say very often, but I think actually the show is better than the people reviewing it. Um, and I think the problem is that a lot of a lot of the, uh, the kind of the, the broadsheet reviews, especially the reviews are bad because of their own wrong expectations. You know, they've mm. gone in expecting something. It's quite obvious from reading some of the reviews that they expect it to be sort of packed with gags. And, and they're almost, it's almost like they're saying that there, there can only really be one kind of comedy. And that's one that's like layered with very clear set up punchline jokes. Whereas I think this is a smarter program than that. I think it's, it's kind of a lot of it's nuanced. A lot of the comedy is in the timing. A lot of it is in some of the historical references. One of the reviews said that it felt like they'd just taken a GCSE in, you know, in, in that era. Um, and I thought, well, what more do you want? It felt like it was fairly, it felt fairly true to sort of his, history, but for it to be any more true to history, it becomes a documentary and it's not a comedy anymore. And also 
a few people kind of uh, in the press slating it for having, and I quote, no jokes. I sort of think it depends what kind of show you're expecting. You wouldn't slate Detectorists, for example, for having no jokes, but you could argue mm. that it doesn't really have any traditional jokes in it. You'd also argue it's a very well-written, very smart comedy. And I think that's that's also true of The Witchfinder. I, I think that's, um, I think I was going to respond that GCSE thing, I, I think is really interesting because there was actually a uh, an article on uh, in broadcast that, came out just before this series launched. So that's more of a trade kind of magazine. So it's a bit more about kind of the production process and things. But um, the Gibbons did uh, employ an academic who specialises in witchcraft as a historical consultant for this show. Um, So, you know, there there is a higher level of knowledge behind this than just GCSE history textbooks. Um, And I also think it's interesting your point about detectorists. For me, that is a first reference point that sprung to mind in terms of it feels like a kind of it's a ge- it feels like quite a gentle watch. I think it's also because literally the, the visuals of it being, you know, set in the British countryside in summer adds to it being a, a gentle, pleasant show to watch. There's an aesthetic to it, which I think ties it to that. Um, and yeah, it, it doesn't feel like this is about out and out gags. This does feel like there's a story progressing which is broadly humorous. Yeah, I mean, if it's not to be too pretentious, it feels like it's a show that sort of weaves a bit of a texture of humour. So it kind of, you know, it, the, 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 it's it's more of a, a patchwork quilt, if you like, than a shiny jacket, um, if, if we're going to go down the metaphor route. And I a think tapestry, a lot, maybe, yeah, more of the I time. A lot of these reviewers are expecting to be sort of hit in the face with, with co- you know, big comedy, you know, mm. just, just because on the strength of the names involved. Um, I do have some criticisms of it, but uh, we'll, we'll, let's get to those in, in a little bit. I think maybe I'm the most lukewarm to this out of the group and also tom to your point about this this being a sort of relaxing nice viewing i i disagree with that quite a bit i think it is i think one of my major issues with the series is that it's tonally all over the place and i don't think it quite knows what it is so there's obviously i think what i mean what i mean by that is more about the visual aesthetics and yeah, the, the fact yeah, yeah. that it's kind of it's beautifully shot oh so yeah it looks I, again I, I think in, in the broadcast article i think it was all shot on on film proper like yeah, the film lenses and, you, and, and you can tell so that the, the, there's a richness to it. The craft behind how the show is made mm, is mm. is to- absolutely top notch. I don't deny that at all. But I think, yeah, I think the, the sort of main issue that I had with it was was its sort of tone because I love dark comedies. I love Psychoville. I love Inside Number Nine. I love The League of Gentlemen. I love Nighty Night. I love those kinds of shows. But this one just kind of felt like it tonally jumped around and didn't quite know what it wanted to be. Like the main example of that. Is, is this sort of really quite haunting and quite macabre, quite sinister, horrible, almost horror element to it where um, Hebel hugs his assistant and after he's he's been singing to him, I think it's in maybe the penultimate episode or maybe even the last episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then episode it cuts back yeah, and yeah. he's and he's stabbed him and he's dead. And I was just like, it was it, it just kind of, this character of Hebel was obviously kind of this, Machiavellian, quite psychopathic, quite, but on the surface of it, very affable and nice and cheery. And that kind of summed up the series for me. There were elements that were really affable and nice and fun and throwaway and silly. And then you have bits like that. And it just kind of set against this sort of bright, beautiful sunshine uh, and countryside. It just kind of jarred tonally with me. And I think I I would have preferred if if it had just kind of committed to one or the other and not tried to be both, because I think it's whimsical in some places, but then really macabre in others. And it just didn't quite 
work for me in that respect. But I think in a way there's something that I quite liked about the, the macabre nature of it versus a kind of essentially a beautiful backdrop of, of the English countryside. Kind of reminded me of, I mean, it's not British, but something like Midsummer in that context. Yeah, You've yeah, got yeah. these horrific yeah. acts taking place, See, but there's a very unsettling tone to the whole so thing. So if they had committed to that, I would have liked it a lot mm. more, I think. But I just think because it jumped so much between sort of like a bit of mm. a silly buddy comedy sort of thing, quite throwaway, uh, and then with this sort of underlying plot, which is quite sinister, it it just it was too much of a juxtaposition for me to think that it works a hundred percent successfully. Because you feel like they they didn't go fully lean into a nighty night kind of weirdness vibe. Yeah, no, like but hundred percent. Yeah, I would say the killing of Hebel's assistant wasn't the only kind of tonally dark. No, definitely not. That was the main I, example I mean, that I had. Yeah, I mean. I guess the whole of Devon Vale yeah. um, is, is is probably the best example yeah. of of, of that yeah, sort like of, all the bodies everywhere. Yeah, the kind of mm. very sinister undertones, but also very kind of sunny. Yeah, like you know they they they're jolliness. walking past, and it is almost like a horror film in the sense that they walk past and they you know they they stop and see oh there's, there's bodies hanging hanging from trees. It is quite a horrific image, but I did like the comedy of it of when Hebel comes in and sits on the sort of. Uh, yeah. <laughs> on the bridge bit and like the body comes up from the water that was quite funny but yeah it, it, it had this kind of underlying horror element to it which I wish if they just like made it a dark comedy and committed to I think I would have liked it a bit more I think yeah I, I do think that's a, that's a really fair point it, it's actually it's not consistently dark enough and it's also not consistently light enough it could have could have been one or the other and I think um, I think I saw on Chaucer I think t- there was a t- uh, short Tim Key interview where they, or maybe it's him or the Gibbons brothers, likening this to something like Midnight Run. So yeah, it definitely seems like they were viewing this as some kind of, not exactly a buddy cop, but a kind of buddy escapade of two two unlikely people witted together, obviously forming a bond as that journey progresses. Yeah, I think from my perspective, I mean, it draws on so many different kind of touch points. You've got the sort of the the, the sort of hapless buddy comedy. You have got those those darker moments which for me are kind of positives and I think when you sort of touch on things like Midsommar I think that is actually a really interesting and 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 relevant um kind of kind of touch point and kind of the things that you've listed as things that you didn't enjoy are almost for me the flip of why I why I did enjoy it um I'm also curious to sort of understand what people thought of of Tim Key in in the role um I mean I thought that personally he wouldn't be a natural go-to for a character of of that kind of ilk, you know, that sort of slightly uh, nastier, sort of slightly pernicious, self-centred character that I don't think Tim Key has necessarily played as much historically. But, I mean, I thought he was brilliant in that role and I thought that he really carried that role exceptionally well. Um, And whilst on paper you might be a bit unsure, I thought that his actual delivery was fantastic and I thought he... He was brilliant in that in that I, sort of lead. I think lead I think it, it works because his nastiness is tied up in his own narcissism. He's not just an out and out cretin, um, and there are people in the show who are much worse than him. So I think it is the fact that it's tied up in his ego makes it something that Tim Key can do well. Um, whereas I think if he was you know just a, a villain, then I wouldn't have found that as believable. Um, I also think that this show you know lives or dies on the chemistry between daisy and tim and i think that worked incredibly well i think also that you know their relationship is quite is quite believable it has lots of twists and turns the power you know shifts back and forth and also you know not to get too deep but i think the show has got quite a lot to say along the way about sort of you know status and about feminism and about you know kind of 
the assumption that 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 money goes hand in hand with intelligence and status and you know the fact that you know she was quite often right and sort of pointing out the holes in his argument was 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 one of the things that made the comedy work so well but i i think it's not too deep to go into that because i think that's i think that's important i think that is that is where all the humor lies that it's kind of it's doing this kind of double layering of there's there's a very obvious uh story for the viewer versus um versus what we how how we see the characters interact i think that's that's where most of the best comedy in this lies i think yeah you, you, uh, tim key is just so watchable in this role i think and watching him and just he is a he is an expert comedic actor the 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 nuances of his performance are amazing and i think unfortunately i think this show was always going to be on a little bit of a back foot for me in terms of me liking it because i i can't really get on with daisy may cooper's sort of shtick and performance i i didn't like this country um the episodes that i watched i just couldn't get into it because i i found that character annoying and the character that she's playing in this uh is, is thomasina is is too similar i think to her character in in this country it's it's kerry with intelligence and i think the 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 only sort of real main part of the series where i really sort of connected with that character was that scene with the uh, the upper class at the dinner table and stuff like that, which I think was brilliantly written and brilliantly acted. That whole scene was heartbreaking and also quite funny at the same time. Um, but yeah, I, unfortunately, I just I, I I don't think I'm ever going to be sort of I don't think I'm ever, I'm ever going to come round to Daisy May Cooper while she plays these kinds of roles. Um, and I think it's something that somebody said on uh, one of our listeners said on Facebook as well that they felt that this kind of cemented her as a one trick pony, which I think I think is a little unfair, but I can kind of see where they're coming from. Um, one thing I did like as well, and I mean, we, we talked about, you know, some again, one of the listeners said if uh, if Gervais had written it, then everyone would be all over it. I do think it's interesting that. One of our criticisms of Afterlife is how you're basically slapped in the face with the heart of the show. You know, they're really trying to make it kind of an emotional thing. I felt like here there were some really great tender moments, but they were woven in quite naturally and it didn't feel like such an emotional sledgehammer as, as Ricky Gervais tends to wave about, um, especially the bits where um, Daisy's basically waiting for the trial and, and the whole thing around like the fact that her dad doesn't actually care about her and hasn't been sending her letters the whole time was really, really kind of well done and and sort of showed a bit of a bit of Gideon's humanity as well um, at just the right point. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And, and I, I think for me... Um, there's a scene that you're referencing, Tom, when they're at the dinner table at um, Dorothy's house. Um, <clears throat> and I, I think that feels like a real turning point for the characters where you, you, you I think, you, you, I think again, some excellent acting from Tim Key here. I think you can almost see on Gideon's face how his feelings for, um, for Thomasine change in terms of understanding what sort of a person she is and how she's being unfairly persecuted and treated across society in general. Um, and I think that's a turning point for then the rest of the narrative throughout the show. And I think what's interesting as well for me, I think the last three episodes felt like the strongest three. And I would kind of agree, like we said as well, it felt it felt like this approved step by step with each episode as the story went along. But I did think it's interesting to feel that when it's actually almost like where the heart and the kind of narrative thrust of the story builds more. So I think really... If you come to this wanting an out-and-out, laugh-a-minute comedy, you are going to be disappointed. If you come to this almost more as a comedy drama, I think it works. Do you see what I mean? If you if you have a slightly different perception of it, so because I, I think in terms of storytelling and I think superb acting, superb cast, and that kind of the way the character interactions develop, particularly in the latter half, it felt strong. If I'm looking at it for one-liners and laugh-out-loud moments, it's it's really thin on the ground. So, I think if you, yeah, if you like we talked about, if you come to this expecting a Steve Coogan, Alan Partridge-style quotable lines, laugh a minute, you, you, this just isn't the show for you. Um, given that I did enjoy it a lot, I'd probably say it was a solid four-star program. There were three bits of uh, of criticism I'd like to level at it. Two that I'm Fairly confident Tom Stab will agree with me on one that I'm almost certain that he wouldn't. Uh, but let's see if there's broad agreement on these. Firstly, I saw you nodding earlier. Jessica Hines is woefully underused in this show for someone with the comedy chops that she has to basically be there to sort of provide exposition and a bit of backstory. I didn't get much of a sense of her character. She didn't have any funny lines, but she was in it quite a lot. She's so in, she's in every, every episode and had mm. no jokes. And like you say, was there just for exposition to kind of be the foil to Hebel. And it, it, I th- that it didn't need to be Jessica Hyde. She, she narrative. Yeah, no, no, but I, I'm not sure I, exactly. I think, I think the, Oh yeah, sorry. Okay. Fair enough. But, also, I think that that character could have been played by anyone. There was no point in Jessica Hines being in this. She she is comedy, borderline comedy royalty in this country. And I just got nothing from that performance and that character. I, I don't know if that's a big issue, though, because I think not every yeah. character can be a huge comic component. Some characters, particularly, as I'm saying, 
view this more of a more as a comedy drama than an out and out comedy, some characters are gonna have to do a job of exposition and and narrative movement. Completely agree, but why get Jessica Hine to play that character? Be, be, well, you know, that's kind of her choice, isn't it? Like if yeah. she's offered the role and she's and she's gone with it, I don't think that necessarily means it's a bad thing. That's yeah. that's her choice for, for her career, you know. Yeah, I, I it's an odd choice for slightly yeah, I think maybe you could say that the, the casting is an, is an odd choice and is that the most exciting role in the show? No, but I think if we're talking about criticism that you'd level at the show, I'm not sure to your kind of list, Adam, that on that first point, I would wholeheartedly agree. I think I would loosely or lightly disagree. <laughs> um, can I move on to the second point? I'm amazed this hasn't come up yet. The CGI in this series seems woefully poor to me particularly the point where the bridge is being blown up and the spark is sort of moving around moving but looks the same um, and, I, and I think I think we can't we can't go any further without talking about Tim Key in the bee suit in the final episode where it basically seems that his face is floating around freeform <laughs> against a cloud of bees I didn't believe for a second that that was actually happening I didn't think it was that bad I, mm, I yeah it, it's, I, it's not something that bothered me basically the bridge thing, I remember thinking, I wonder how they're actually going to do that from a technical perspective because it felt like it had the promise of quite a big sort of set piece, as it were. And then I, I distinctly remember that shot. I remember thinking, <laughs> yeah, that, that's not great. I honestly thought The Bees was not bad at all. I mean, it's ultimately a show that doesn't have a huge sort of special effects budget. And to have a man wear a sort of suit of bees is probably a fairly uh, challenging kind of ask of a CGI department with a limited budget. Personally... I I thought it was I thought it was decent enough. So I fear I'm loosely or lightly uh, disagreeing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think don't get me wrong. I think the, the the concept of him wearing a suit of bees was great, but it was just the way his face moved was really took me out at the moment. Um, the the third criticism I've got, which I'm I'm you know I, I, again, if there's light disagreement so far, I think this might be where I lose the crowd. Um, <laughs> I really felt that Reese Shearsmith was acting almost like he was in a complete. I was going to make show. the exact same point. Yeah, he's. I mean, obviously, this is what he does, and you know, he's again t- to your point about this, perhaps not, you know, not fully investing in being a dark comedy. He often his characters often go off the deep end in his own dark comedies, but I felt like in this one, as the Witchfinder General, he was too outlandish. It was too heightened. And everyone else had sort of brought a bit of realism to the proceedings where it felt like he'd kind of gone off the deep end a little bit. Yeah, you know, I hadn't really thought about that, but I, I think, yeah, now you've said it, I, I think I agree. It's almost like he's beamed himself in from an episode of Inside Number Nine or something yeah, and really yeah. hammed it up. Yeah. But I mean, I, I yeah, have got that. Ex- that's fair. I have got that exact same note. He's acting in a different show, but I'm happy to watch that show because I love Rhys Shearsmith. <laughs> <laughs> um, is is it worth spending a moment just to go through a few of the cameos? Because yes. I think the, the cameos throughout this series are pretty exceptional. And again, it's another really nice and strong link to the world of Partridge, a lot of the bit players you see here. Um, I mean, what, I don't know. There are so many. What's the best way? Should we just go through some of our favourites? Uh, yeah, I mean, I always, always happy to see Julian Barrett. And I think, you know, this was yes. a performance no better or worse than any others. I mean, I, I thought Julian Barrett was possibly my favourite cameo in the series. I would agree. Because I, I, I thought it's great acting. He that, that character is funny and also does something very important to the story. So that felt like a bit, felt like a bit of a triple whammy. Um, also in that ep- episode, it's episode five that we first see him, isn't it? I think, is, that, is it episode five so, or yeah. four? Yeah, it's, four, I think yeah. it's five. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think for me, my other favourite was probably um, Alan Mustafa or Seeper, um, who... Uh, 
listeners may know from such things as people people just do nothing uh and the curse i thought his role was excellent as a grocer and again i just what i really enjoyed about his whole segment is basically the the modern day um allegory um in terms of mansplaining uh you know the, the, th- the thing about kind of discussions of truth and uh you know the in terms of fake news flat earth the whole thing about oh yeah we'll leave you to get on with cooking a cake but yeah but you always tell me to put more sugar in and the thing about apples and I'm getting rid of them. You can't have that. I just thought that was such a well-scripted scene. Uh, and I thought he just really made me laugh in that role as well. Yeah, that was that was a highlight for me, I think. that Probably that episode, to be honest, that whole episode. Yeah. Did, did anyone expect Ricky Tomlinson to turn up? No. I was like, is that, <laughs> no. is that definitely him? Is that definitely... Oh, God, it yeah, is, isn't is. it? No, no, no. Yeah. I was, yeah. As I was watching it, I was yeah. thinking, is that yeah. really him? Yeah, it is. I was thinking, oh, so, so he'll, he'll be in it quite a lot. Oh, no, no, just the three lines. Okay. <laughs> Uh, we also have, according to IMDb, Neil Gibbons playing a, the horse. Yes. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, when yeah. I first heard the voice of the horse, I thought for a second that might have been Craig Parkinson, just because of the accent. Yeah, I, sounded, I, I, yeah I thought that as well. Uh, I enjoyed uh, Carrie Lloyd as well yeah. uh, as, uh, as as Dor- Gideon's ex-girlfriend. It's really great. And it, can, can we say, does Carrie Lloyd possibly have the best if not one of the best lines of the series uh when she has the white honey from the ramscock she oh, yes. says yes. I've, I've had that before yeah, yeah. i think and that might be the episode. best line of the series because it's so short and just yeah and it ends that, the episode as well doesn't it? to end the episode yeah yeah yeah, it yeah, does. yeah. 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 Uh, also um, rudy gibbons who as boy witch finder who i imagine a little bit of nepotism there <laughs> oh yeah i'm sure he auditioned that. like everyone else <laughs> <laughs> Um, and there's loads of other Partridge alumni here. You've got uh, Dan Skinner, who we've formerly seen as the chemsex guy. Oh, yeah. Uh, Casey Wicks, who was Dr. Susan Lyle in this time. Uh, Rosie Cavallero, obviously Rosie Witter. Um, oh, and Seb Cardinal from Cardinal Burns, but also seen as Tommy, the fashion expert in this time. Um, and yeah, Carrie Lloyd, who we've discussed. And Alistair Green, a.k.a. Man in the Window at the conclusion of this time as well. Uh, a firm favourite of all of ours there, Alistair Green. Big fans here. Are we, are we missing any other key cameos there? Oh, I think there are probably loads more, to be honest. Yeah. What's the name of uh, fake Hopkins' assistant? Because that's uh, Sleep Well, Greg. Um, oh, yeah. I can't think of his name. Oh, yes. Uh, and also I had... Um, in the first episode, and I don't have the character name here, um, when Tim Key is basically borrowing the hat and bumps into the guy, uh, the bald guy, that's Vincent Franklin, um, who for me is a very familiar face from things like 2012 and the thick of it. But also, I uh, just want to highlight, that is the guy who has the right, that's lunch line in the office as well. So absolute comedy royalty there. Lovely. Um, so uh, one thing I wanted to, to talk about a little bit was do we think there's a future for the Witchfinder? And I guess that's a two-part question. One, is it good enough to continue? And two, do we think there's life left in this story? Because um, I guess, you know, it's it's somewhat fairly neatly tied off, but all the major players are, you know, or, or certainly the two main characters are alive at the end of it hmm. and on the run. Yeah, I think it's neat. Regardless, it's, it's written very well. I think it's a satisfactory ending from a narrative perspective, but it's left in such a way that ultimately it, it could go on um, elsewhere. I mean, look, the reality is I don't know how, how big the expectation was and to what extent it's delivered on that from a kind of a viewership perspective. 
I can only answer it from the perspective of would I want to see a second series? Personally, I would because I really enjoyed it and I would happily spend another three hours um, with, with these characters. And knowing what I know of the Gibbons, I think that what you're not going to get is a sort of a rehash of, you know, another kind of like buddy story where they've got to get from A to B. And there's, do you know what I mean? I think that it will be a kind of, whatever the approach would be for a second series. It would be smart. It would be considered. I don't think it would come anytime soon either. I don't think they'd kind of churn scripts out. So I think we'd be waiting a while if there is a second series. Um, I think I'd, I'd agree with that. I guess my thing is I really enjoyed this series. I don't quite know what the premise would be to justify a second series that wasn't a rehash because obviously the easiest thing to do from a kind of believability point of view would be Tim Key with a different witch Um, but you need that chemistry with Daisy Mae Cooper I think to keep the show vibrant just having them on the run from everybody as they were at the end of the series for six more episodes I don't think is is different enough Um, so I'm sort of a yeah a caveated yes I'd love to see a second series but I don't know what the idea the concept would be that would make it right. Mm, it's interesting because you, you can't have your shit. Because <laughs> it, it doesn't really work if it's just kind of essentially guest which of the series. It has to be something more of more substance than that, yeah. doesn't it? And it, and it doesn't work if it's if it's um, Gideon and Tom Thomasina running through the you know the woodland forever trying to escape various mm. people either. I mean, I it, it's interesting because it's definitely left open that it could happen, but I I wonder what the benchmark of success would be to commission a second series. Like uh, that genuinely is, I think a really interesting discussion for the world of TV comedy these days. Like particularly, you know, the series dropped as a whole on iPlayer and has then been uh, week by week on BBC two. I, I'd be amazed if it's getting huge viewing figures. Cause I just well, think like Tom, please, the premise, Tom, please take to WhatsApp to see something live, which I've just sent to the group. On WhatsApp. Oh, hang on. I'm going to WhatsApp live. One moment. I'm just putting in my uh, my satellite earpiece. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, oh, wow. Okay. Um, I stand corrected, said the man in the orthopaedic shoe. <laughs> Tom, do you want to share with the listeners what you've just shared with us? Yeah, so I remember seeing this a few days ago and then just completely forgot about it. Um, someone posted on Twitter, um, who someone by the name Cameron Yard Jr., um, who has five and a half thousand followers on Twitter. So obviously it must be true. Uh, he just said, he said, I... I spotted that the first episode of The Witchfinder got over 2 million viewers in their weekly ratings on BBC Two. 2 million watching a comedy on BBC Two, exclamation mark. So the actual number is... That is huge. 2,337,430. Now, how much of that is that Partridge audience being drawn in through the name and through the association of the Gibbons plus advertising. I think the BBC went quite hard on the advertising for this. I saw quite a lot of pre-roll. I saw quite a lot of stuff on social media. Um, it'd be interesting to know whether that is a consolidated figure or whether that's just by itself, uh, as in watching it sort of quote-unquote live. Um, and then also what the, the drop-off was from that. Um, we really should have asked someone, shouldn't we? Maybe someone we know who has access to uh, viewing figures, but we didn't. <laughs> well, uh, uh, what we can do, we can, in a future episode, we can uh, try and pick that up, but it's probably not going to be till the next series by the time we get around to it. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, in summary, just under two and a half million people watching uh, The Witch Finder. It was only beaten uh, in the ratings by University Challenge, which got 2.6 million. 
I mean, I, I would say with the limited TV industry knowledge I have, if the viewing figures continue like that, this is definitely getting a second series, no doubt about it. I mean, Nick, you've got some kind of television broadcast knowledge, vaguely. Uh, what, what do you think? Oh, you put me on the spot now. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> She's going, no, it, I don't. It's cert- yeah, it's certainly bigger than, than I expected. As you say, you know, ultimately, it's a, it's a numbers game. If people watch it, you know, great, let's make more of it, etc. So, What you're saying is people like, like possibly... it, let's make more of them. Exactly. Um, I was going to move on to another subject, Um and I was keen to hear what you thought about whether we would get any kind of appearance from uh, a Mr. Coogan. Um, did anyone expect there to be any kind of small part for him? I I didn't. Um, I'm glad there wasn't. I think now that they've proven they can hit a home run, they could safely have a cameo in the second series, and that would be fine. And I think probably there does need to be a second series, if for no other reason, then we need to know whether Thomasine is going to successfully poo out that map. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what? That that was another line I loved when he says, uh, are, you, are you not having your bunny? She's, no, I'm yeah. all right. I had that map earlier. That, well, that was, was good. Also, yeah. this, is, this, has become, uh, this has become a running gag in our house when I watch my daughter put a giant piece of food in her mouth. I'll just sit there and go... You're not good luck getting that down. You're, you're not. You're not getting that down. Are you getting that down? I can't believe. I can't believe you're getting that down. Have you got that down? Unbelievable. Uh, I mean, it. I don't know. It's it's an interesting thing. Like watching this, I've watched this twice through, and it didn't feel like huge gags and punchlines really happened. But I did try and jot down bits of script and narrative that I did enjoy, and actually, you know, it's very. It's very. Is it weird to say it's very nicely written? That doesn't sound like a great compliment, but you know, it's just things like I'm just looking at my notes here. Um, when he calls a hat the shoe of the head, you know, there is some quite silly <laughs> bits of dialogue which I do think really worked, and and I think things like eating the map and all that, or, or actually, again, in first episode, I'm not going to say the word, but it becomes with the letter C. I thought that was great, but also there are sometimes gags like that where you feel like, oh, that could come straight from a this time script. Do you know what I mean? So. A question that I wanted to pose, and this is something that I'd spoken to, spoken to, to Tom about. If you're the Gibbons and you're sitting in a writing room writing um, The Witchfinder and you come up with a brilliant line or a brilliant gag or, you know, something that is absolutely top class, do you put it into Witchfinder or do you hold it back for for Alan Partridge? The kind of thing that I would compare it to is, is a, a member of a successful band going off and doing a solo record. If Brandon Flowers from The Killers goes away and writes a brilliant hook or a brilliant chorus or a brilliant song, is he going to put it on his solo record or is he going to save it for The Killers when they come around to doing another album? Because obviously more people are going to see it and it is potentially going to make that sh- that album or that single even bigger and more successful and then the more money. So I was just wondering what people thought about that as a theory. Well, I guess with Coogan as a script supervisor, he's got eyes on, on both of them. So he's able to exert some control. I'm having that. We'll save that. We'll save that line for yeah. something else. Yeah. Um, in all seriousness, though, and I don't know this to be true, but I could imagine that they took you know time out to write this independently of Alan. Um, and so, whilst this doesn't quite answer your point, because clearly you know a line can just appear and then you can drop it in, but I feel like I would imagine that they kind of separate the projects and take time out to just write on this. Um, so I would imagine that there's kind of limited kind of um, uh, kind of. You know, transferring of writing between the two, but 
you never know. And it's a bit of a bind, I guess, as a writer as to where you start to place your, your grade A material. I, th- I think it's worth, um, there's a bit of context I can share in terms of the gestation of this. So uh, this broadcast article that I read today. So yeah, they, I guess the Gibbons brothers had this green lip, but then they've also had quite a few different uh, comedy commissioners uh, change across the BBC for the years that this has been green lit. Um, apparently the show was originally conceived as a comedy feature film off the back of the success of Alpha Papa, but was put on the back burner in favour of various Partridge projects whilst the pair sought a window to write and shoot it. And the article continues, by October 2019, the concept had morphed into a 6 by 30 minute series commissioned for BBC Two and production as we know, began in March 2020, uh, which was obviously spectacular bad timing. So it's interesting that this would have been in the ether whilst they're doing all this other Partridge work at the same time. So trying to squeeze in a window where they can actually be free of Partridge to go and make this, I just think it probably must have been really difficult for them to really carve up their Partridge brain and their, and their Witchfinder brain if, if these, these, all these projects being intertwined across the years. Um, I wonder as well if um, their priority in terms of time is Partridge. You know, if a Partridge project comes in, this has to go on the shelf for a while. Mm. But I also don't think they would just save the best lines for Partridge. I think they would have to, you know, kind of balance them both or look at, you know, which story a line or a punchline serve best. Because, you know, obviously to be the writers of Partridge is, is amazing in and of itself. But this is very much an opportunity to set up their stall um, you know, as doing something very different, and I think you wouldn't waste your, your you know, your best shot at doing that. Um, I think yeah. you know, if, if this had really died in its ass, which I don't think it, it has or will, then then effectively, you know, they're they're writing Partridge until Coogan doesn't want to do it anymore, and that's their their primary function. I mean, I, I guess ultimately, like you know, if you compare something like this to this time, they are very different comic vehicles. The nature of the writing. The nature of the punchlines and and the, and the big gags is inherently different anyway. So, it, you know, I think there are a few points where I've kind of heard something gone. Oh, I could imagine Alan saying that in, in a in a kind of one time scenario. But I think they're few and far between. And I, and I think it feels tailored to it's a more nuanced, more kind of gentle comedy proposition in terms of like you're saying, like the kind of <laughs> the patchwork quilt of humour, uh, not necessarily big gaudy punchlines um yeah and this has to serve a narrative as well you know there's a bit more of a story mm. to, oh, very, this yeah. Yeah, yeah. to this time and equally you know you can't have any jokes about modern technology in this you can't have any jokes about anything that's happened in the last 300 years really so that does that does separate out some of the content but you can say cause of death it's the guts everywhere they should be on the inside <laughs> that's another favorite of mine that's yeah. really good but yeah, you know what you're, you're totally right in terms of i think we talked about this time that could almost work as a sketch show because you're going in and out of segments and in and out of VT pieces and junior pieces. So every kind of three minutes, something different is happening. Whereas, yeah, there there has to be a strong narrative across the across the three hour story here. So, any final thoughts on the Witchfinder before we wrap up for the week? I mean, it's not so much on the Witchfinder in general, but just what we've just spoken about in terms of how these projects have lined up. It really does kind of show a light on the incredible work rate of the Gibbons and how they are consistently churning out brilliant material because you've had i mean what you've had mid-morning matters uh i partridge nomad two series of this time podcast film Witchfinder and stratagem and it's just it seems relentless and the amount and of that material seemed, that what's that it, 
12 years or ten, something? 10 years, yeah, 12 years, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's a lot, It yeah. is staggering the amount that they churn out on such a high quality. So, it, you know, the, the, talking about this kind of stuff really does put into perspective, like, the 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 sheer workload that they, they, they're they taking on and nailing. I mean, we're rushed, we're rushed off our feet keeping up here. Yeah. <laughs> Please, what do you think of the podcasters? <laughs> All right, I, I had a I had a large question for the group then as we're kind of uh, getting towards concluding thoughts. What did you guys make of the Gibbons choosing a witch finder general and kind of like witch trials as the topic for a sitcom? Do you, do you think that, did you find that interesting and do you think it worked? I mean, there's kind of like, is it a bit of a metaphor for council culture and, you know, how... Uh, people are very quick to judge people in the modern in the modern mm. world, and I mean, is that really what they're going for, or is it just something that people have made a connection with? I'm not 100 percent sure, but I, it, it's it was a funny setting for me at first, again because of the tonality and how that didn't quite sit right with me. But um, yeah, I, I think it, it kind of makes sense if you're thinking about the role of council council culture in modern society, and obviously something that. I think Steve is quite um, in mm-hmm. tune with yeah. and and very aware of, and obviously him being a script consultant on this, is it something that they they look to do? Um, I, I think maybe that point has been missed by people, if it is indeed a point that they were going for, but um, it, it, it's something that kind of revealed itself to me as the show went on. I, I'd really agree, and I think it is it, it really does work for me as a as a kind of through line and a concept and a historical setting. I think some of the press reviewers perhaps um, were, were so disappointed with this because what they were hoping for was another Blackadder, uh, because I guess that's another sort of parallel you could draw. Mm, yes. I think while while you don't get the gags that you might have got from from Blackadder, I think what you do get is this sort of idea of using a historical setting to kind of allude to and tease modern themes and i think that's that's one area where the witchfinder and blackadder do share a lot of common ground and a lot of successful common ground as well i mean i i think for me i think that is very much the point of this i think aside from i think there might be a general a genuine historical interest in this era um you know particularly uh the kind of partridge loving wolf hall thomas more (laughs) um sort of uh oliver cromwell sort of vibe um i think uh Obviously, they're, they're, it's given them the opportunity to draw parallels to the present day. So, yeah, I would assume, yeah, they're targeting cancel culture and almost kind of like culture wars, particularly how they play out in the media and social media, uh, and you know the current, uh, the kind of current political climate and uh, the very entrenched divisions of left and right, and everything being so kind of diametrically opposed. Because that seems like something that is a draw to both Coogan and, and the Gibbons. Like it's often quite heavily referenced or hinted at in this time, and you know it's kind of. It feels like quite a classic um, allegory, really, much like The Crucible telling the story of the Salem Witch Trials as an allegory for the McCarthy era with broadly left-wing individuals being accused of being communists or socialists or un-American. It seems like that's kind of, you know, the Gibbons are having their version of that with this here. Um, however, I would say, like, I think for me that felt very clear, but it didn't feel too on the nose or overwrought to detract from it from being a solid piece of storytelling and an enjoyable enough show to watch um you know i think it's kind of inescapable in terms of the moral panic witch trial cancel culture kind of connections you know just look at kind of john ronson's say you've been publicly shamed but or even his things fell apart podcast which is a good exploration of how we've reached the point of a lot of our current culture wars it feels like quite a rich seem to make quite a kind of obvious point but i think they've done it in a way where it doesn't 
doesn't detract from there is a story to tell and I think they achieve that. Question to the group. Um, when we interviewed Tim Key, they had done just one day of filming on Witchfinder, is that right? Yes. Yeah, he'd snogged Daisy yeah, and yeah. Cooper. Yeah. So what I quite enjoyed about that was that means they must have been filming, what, episode three that day? There, there's a scene in Dead and Vale where they kiss. Yeah. So I just quite like the fact we can place broadly the day just before Tim uh, interviewed with us for Monkey Tennis. Uh, yes, do go back and enjoy that interview uh, with some uh, tidbits about the recording of uh, Witchfinder. Well, a very brief bit of the recording of Witchfinder before lockdown scuppered it all again. Um, so yes, that's our view of the Witchfinder, um, but we're only just setting off on the road to stratagem. So join us next week. We'll be going through some of your feedback, followed by uh, a little look into Anglian lives. Um, Steve Coogan's the man who thinks he's it. Uh, Alan Partridge and other less successful characters and then ending with a big night out at the O2 for Stratagem the new Alan Partridge live show Um, so from all of us at Monkey Tennis the Alan Partridge fan podcast thanks so much for listening see you next week and goodbye I am hopping mad and I want something in the middle aha Yup, absolutely. Yup, 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 absolutely. Monkey tennis? Bring, bring. There's a new chat in town. I had the last laugh. Damn! Monkey tennis? Love this, my foot on a spike. With a chuckle, with a chuckle. No. Monkey tennis? Radical. Awesome. Mega. <laughs> Monkey tennis? Where's my assistant? I do not know. Okay. Monkey tennis? Edmunds is a total wazzer of a guy. Yes, 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 and yes. It's hotter than the sun. I said, who the hell is that? Like, this is great banter. Yeah. Back of the net. Monkey tennis? The people who enjoy Alan Partridge will enjoy this podcast. The people who've never got it still won't get it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.